So you want me to just say like my name? Yeah, is just say your name. What is your practice in art, and maybe where you're from. This is the most difficult question you've asked all interview. I'm not even joking. It's like, how do I pronounce my name? Am I a painter? Am I an artist? Am I, you know, am I from Montreal, really? I'll try. My name is Katerina Pansera. I'm a painter, and I'm from Montreal. That's pretty good. You want it again? Go for it. My name is Katerina Pansera. I'm a painter, and I'm from Montreal. Are you sure that's your name? No, <laughs> <laughs> but I could live no, with that. I, I think good. I said Katerina. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's pretty standard. I mean, we can go back and listen if you really want no, to make no, sure. Okay. No. Hi, I'm Marx Rhys Wilson, and you're listening to Into This. Into This is my podcast where I explore contemporary arts. And I do that through conversations with people involved in the arts in the city of Montreal in Canada. So today I have a very special podcast for you. It's an interview with painter Katerina Pantera. She's a local, she's a Montrealer. And yeah, we'll be talking about arts. We'll be talking about uh, many other things that I'll tell you in a minute. But before that, uh, this is the first time I'm going to do this and it feels going to strange to me to be talking about something else in the podcast, but I will do that. I have an announcement to make. And some of you probably know that last year in the summer, I organized a show. Yeah, an art show. I mean, I've been talking about arts with too many people, right? So I guess you get influenced, you get interested. And uh, last year, in, it was in July, I organized a show with uh, a bunch of artists, most of them friends. And uh, it was great. It was it was really interesting. It was a lot of work, but I really I really got into it. I really enjoyed organizing the whole thing, um, sending you know many many emails, calling many people, trying to figure everything out. And at the end, it was it was great. But it only lasted for a couple of days, and so <laughs> that felt like there was a lot of work for um, not too much enjoyment. Say at the end, for people to actually get to see the show, right? So. This year, I um, I took on another project. I'm going to be starting a small art space in downtown Montreal. And it's going to be called TAP, like last show, like last year's show, T-A-P. And that makes reference to this um, concept of uh, evolutionary biology, which is uh, the adjacent possible. And I'm not going to get into it, but basically it makes reference to your possibilities. What is what is what is next for you? What is your um, what is your next step? What can you do with the resources you have now? What's coming up? It is basically uh, people people talk about it as as the shadow of the imminent future or something like that. So it's a little reference to that, and it's a little bit of reference to. The influences that I've had in the past couple of years, you know, being close to artists, being close to curators and to wonderful people who have really taught me a lot and and who have inspired me to continue to be involved in in this, in making things happening, making this podcast, but also now uh, starting to organize shows in a more regular basis. And so... My little space is going to be called again TAP and the first vernissage will be on May 4th. So that's going to be in two weeks from now, which is, this is going to be aired um, the Friday, 
let's see, it's gonna be Air Friday, the 20th of, of April. So in two weeks from now, it's gonna be the first opening. And the first show will be featuring artists Marcela Borges and Raul Aguilar. And uh, the show is called The State of Our Employability. It's a great show. I'm not going to spoil anything, so I'm not going to say anything about the show here. I just want you to take this as an invitation. <laughs> Please show up. It'd be great to see you there. And uh, if you need more information, the website is tapmontreal, so T-A-P-Montreal.com. And yeah, so you can find all the information there. You can find where the place is. It will be functioning in um, appointment base. So after the show... If you want to see it again, just send us an email and we'll make sure to be there for whenever you want to see it. And yeah, so I just wanted to say thank you so much to everybody who has been involved in this. It's a it's a really great community because everybody everybody gets excited when something like this is turning up and Everybody's really supportive and even, you know, the big galleries, uh, the commercial galleries, uh, uh, DIY projects, everybody who I have contact with have really demonstrated their support. And I, I really appreciate that. Really. Thank you very much. Okay, enough of me. Now let's go back to the podcast of today. So as I said, my guest today is Katerina Pancera. Katerina is a painter and she is especially interested in the state of contemporary painting. She investigates concepts and ideas related to spectacle and fantasy narratives. And uh, we, we'll talk about that during the conversation. It was really interesting to know how she approaches her work and why she wouldn't use too many human figures in her work. So that, that was really interesting. She also hosts a radio show where she interviews artists, which, you know, is kind of meta for this show. So it was great to talk to somebody who can do it better than me. So I learned a lot from her. Uh, it, was, it was really great. And you should go listen to her show. Uh, the show is called Out of Lines and is aired in CKUT radio station is 90.3 FM. <laughs> that feels that feels funny. It's like a radio announcer. But uh, yeah, so she's in the radio, in the real radio, not in the podcast uh, space. Uh, you should go listen to her interviews. They're pretty, pretty nice interviews. Uh, really great artist, and and she talks about really interesting things that can only come from another artist, right? So that's an artist's perspective to the arts, which is also very interesting. In 2015, she started this really interesting project, which is she hosts a residency right on her studio, and she called it the Degaspe Nano Residency because Degaspe is the street where her studio is. And we'll talk about that too. I think it's a really interesting idea. And we also go into a topic that is very interesting for me, which is how families react when somebody tells them that they want to be an artist, that they want to go to art school. And, you know, that's always a very interesting thing because not everybody is very approving and very supportive of that idea. And I have to say here that I'm guilty of that with my sister, my younger sister, but We'll get into that later in the conversation. So I had a blast talking to Katarina. We had a lot of topics to talk about, and it, it was great. All right, so let's jump right into it. I want to say thank you very much again for listening to this podcast, and I will talk to you at the end of this. Enjoy. The levels are great there. Yeah. 
Yeah. I hope I don't shift. You you can feel free to stop me. No, I think it's fine. I'll readjust. I think, I think it's good. No, 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 it's great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is this is probably what I should have done, like with all my interviews, but I never did. So I I feel I feel good with you because you understand yeah. this, this. Oh yeah, no, I understand that you're stuff. also working and monitoring things while you're doing the interview, which yeah, is again, like if you can give me some pointers, I would appreciate. Okay, that. <laughs> but I think you know what you're doing. <laughs> no, um, no, thank thank you very much for coming. I really appreciate that that you took your time today. Thank you, to Mark, for, for sure. inviting me. No. Of course. The tables are being turned on me. I know. How does it feel? Oh, gosh. I feel like I'm being given a taste of my own medicine. <laughs> well, not so much because you are a professional artist and you know what you're talking about. <laughs> that is the difference with me. I just ask questions and it's kind of like funny because this is my way to educate myself in the arts. And that's one thing that I wanted to ask you. Where the idea of having a, a radio show on contemporary art came from? Well, I started doing the show at the radio station CKUT in 2015. And previously I was doing radio DJing at the station. I was DJing music shows for a couple of years. And then the opportunity came up to do an arts talk show. And I thought... This is what I should really be investing my time and energy into is talking about art because this is my field. I had finished art school in 2013. Um, so at this point, I was still sort of feeling things out, uh, kind of grappling with being outside of yeah. school. And I thought that doing an art radio show would be a, a great way to sort of connect with other artists because otherwise you're kind of flung out on your own and you don't have network necessarily right out of school. Yeah, that's what I've heard recently that a lot of the projects that you see lately uh, being, you know, Sprout in Montreal, like the DIY places, start from that same feeling. It's like, I want to go back to that. I want to go back to talk to uh, about art with my friends or something. So um, who was your first guest? Hmm. My first guest was Julie Trudel. At this point, I sort of knew nothing about being a journalist. She was not able to do the show live, so I remember I went over to her studio and I, I lugged over this nice Marantz recorder and we did the interview in her studio and that was quite nice. And I just sort of tried to get a sense of what she was doing. She does very controlled um, abstract art that is quite close to op art and she has very interesting techniques that she uses. So that was kind of the focus of our interview. And that was the beginning of the show. At that point, it was called Art Seen and Heard, <laughs> which is kind of a prosaic title. Now it's called Out of Lines more recently. Right. And since then, I've interviewed a number of artists. It's It's been a great learning experience. It's been a great way to have authentic conversations with people and to sort of get out of my own head and get out of the studio because that's such a solitary place to be, which... On the one hand, I love, but on the other hand, it is, it's not a bad idea to talk to other people on oh, occasion. Sure. Um, do these conversations bring influences to your own work? Like, do you feel that that happens? You know, I don't know that they've influenced my paintings directly in any sense. I think the more prominent uh, influence would be in just in terms of inspiration, mm. of uh, inspiring me to continue and because 
talking from artist to artist or talking between artists, we kind of share a lot of the same struggles and joys. So that's always reassuring to have that complicity and connection between people. When I started doing the radio show also, uh, I spoke with a number of painters. That was kind of, it was a bit of a pretext to speak to some established artists who I admired and to get to know them a little bit more on a personal as well as professional level. So among my first painter guests were Janet Werner, Cynthia Girard, uh, Carol Wainio, and, you know, on and on. But that was kind of a a really exciting time for me to, you know, to get to speak to these amazing painters who some are based in Montreal, some are far flung in Canada. I share that. I share that totally. I'm not a professional artist, but I do share that feeling of, okay, I admire these people and now I have the chance to talk to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it feels great. Yeah. That's why I invited you to be part of the show too. Because, <laughs> you know, I, I do admire that, you know, you're an artist, but you also have this other side. It's, it's telling that, I don't know, that, you, that you're looking for more things mm-hmm. to, to explore. That's great. Yeah, I am. And mm-hmm. um, I would say, you know, I, I have no aspiration to be a professional broadcaster. And, right. and CKUT is a very funky place. It's kind of a zany, oddball, freeform radio station. And that's just the place that I need to be and the place I need to be doing this show because it's not about creating professional quality broadcasts. It's kind of about these strange encounters, these uh, you know, these encounters that can happen on the radio and again, more recently with the show, we're, we're kind of being quite performative about it, yeah. incorporating music. And right. there's a comedic aspect as, as well, which I, I would not have foreseen. True. So I think, you know, radio can be an extension of one's art practice. And it's a, it's a place where art can happen as well. It's true. And it's great that it can be that free, you know. Yes. Because... In, in commercial radio, you probably have more constraints mm-hmm. in what kind of words you can say or can, what kind of topics you can talk about. Mm-hmm. And yeah, when it's something that is that free, it's true that it becomes almost like another art project, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, no, wait, I'm not saying that this is an art project of mine. I'm just saying that like for you, it could be like, you know, more explorative and like all that stuff. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. And that's why CKUT is such a special place. And I do feel like at, at the beginning, it, when I started to do the the radio program, I wasn't, you know, I was searching for a way to be a little bit less conventional, but it was difficult at first. You know, I did sort of do straight interviews and only now am I a little bit more comfortable with exploring the uh, other possibilities that are afforded by uh, this type of radio station that is non-commercial. Right. So like the uh, comedic aspect, like what kind of things do you do? (laughs) Well, I'll preface this by saying that a few months ago, I invited my uh, my neighbor down the hall and friend, Adrian Norvid, who's a a wonderful artist uh, who mostly works in drawing. I invited him to join me as the house band of the program which is now called Out of Line. So, and he, he has a music background, and of course he's a kind of wonderful offbeat artist. And he said yes. And so ever since, he has been the house bands, and usually he brings a bunch of synths 
and odd small instruments. Uh, you know, there's slide whistles and cymbals and anything you could think of that he can uh, stuff into a rucksack. <laughs> and the idea is that he just sort of plays um, incidental music, you know, after an interview between songs. And and he also has the role of being a kind of s- support to myself as the principal host so we'll have a bit of banter sometimes yeah and so um through this we've developed some little routines and things uh, uh, I, during one episode we had um a drawing lesson so we did a drawing lesson <laughs> on air um, during another we did a spelling test you know at one point he couldn't come to the show so i phoned him and uh, he was at his gallery yeah, preparing for an opening. So it was the type of hijinks that we get up to. And I, I hope there's more to come. That is great, though. You're like doing it on the go and like learning it on the go and exploring it a little bit more. That's good. Yeah. No, yeah. Um, so I'm just going to ask you this because I want to totally steal it from you. How do you prepare for an interview? <laughs> <laughs> Well, the first step is to invite a guest. Right. <laughs> Sometimes this happens at the last minute. That's okay, uh-huh. because I do like to be pretty topical. The program I'm doing airs once a month, so that means I'm not necessarily aware of things too far in advance. Sometimes you'll see that there's an opening happening, and uh, that's the you know that person is the perfect guest to have on on your show next week. So once I've secured a guest, uh, at that point, I'll start doing some research. And um, mainly, I have visual artists as my guests. Sometimes I've had curators um, or other people involved in the arts. But when I'm interviewing an artist, uh, often the first step is to just visit that person's website and get a sense of the work and, you know, maybe do a bit of Googling and it's pretty standard, I would say. Right. And I would say a lot of the questions just come from my perspective as an artist. I, I ask formal questions. I ask uh, questions related to concept, to uh, art, you know, the uh, artist statement, uh, to exhibitions, past exhibitions. Uh, so pretty standard stuff. But um, I would say that a lot of the questions I'm asking are just genuine questions that I have about that person's work. Yeah, I think that's the best. Yeah. And that's probably why I always end up talking about like stuff that it moves away from the arts. You know, I'm I'm always interested in I don't know, the politics of art and like the economics also of art. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's true that, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to ask what you're interested in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you being an artist, I guess it also brings a lot of like self-exploratory questions, right? That's true. Yeah. yeah. A lot of the questions I ask are based on material mm-hmm. and formal aspect I'm, I'm realizing. And a lot of the guests I invite in the first place are painters. Right. <laughs> so these are things that obviously I want to delve into and I want to know more about. Of course. So tell me, what, what kind of things do painters like to talk about with painters? Hmm. Well, sometimes the questions really do deal with technique. Like, how are you making these paintings? Because not everyone is using a paintbrush. Sometimes you're using squeegees or you're using droppers and inks. 
and so on. So those kind of material concerns, I like talking shop, so to speak. Right. And, uh, you know, it processes well. How do you make an image? Are you working with Photoshop? Are you working purely from imagination? Are you using reference images? Those are the things that I think give a lot of insight into the actual work. And I think that people can appreciate learning about the process. Totally. But I think more a painter. <laughs> yeah, because, <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah no. It's very niche, isn't it? I, it, it? Yeah, it gets pretty niche. No, no, I don't mean that. I mean that, you know, it's, it's like kind of like professional conversations. I don't know. Like, for instance, I would tell you that if I talk to another chemist and we would be talking about the actual job, then we would share these little things that it's very specific for the job. Uh-huh. But for instance, like things that I, I wonder about a painter's work when you are in the studio and all that is, for instance, like, what do you listen to? Mm-hmm. Or, or like, or what do you drink to where you are? Mm-hmm. If you ever drink alcohol, maybe or not. I don't know. You know that kind of questions is like the things that I wonder. So let me ask you, <laughs> <laughs> do, do you listen to music while you paint? Uh, yes. And, and that, that's actually a, a great question about what happens in the studio for me. Yeah, I'd love to talk about about that. I do listen to music. I think it's kind of critical for getting into the painting mindset. And at a certain point, you st- well, I, I shouldn't generalize. At a certain point, I sort of stop hearing the music. But to get to that point, uh, what I listen to is kind of key. And uh, I think I try to choose pretty familiar music and music with a good groove. Because I don't want to be too distracted by something complex and new to me. Right. Uh, I've got uh, Fun House by The Stooges, which is one of my favorite records, and I probably listened to that a million times. Oh, yeah. That's kind of a classic work record for me. So anything and everything, really, but I think because I want to be in the kind of... Some people call it a state of flow or creative... Oh, the matrix. (laughs) (laughs) A certain mindset of um, being almost automatic in painting. Mm -hmm. And I think music helps me get there. Right. So I do listen to music. I don't, uh, you know, snacking is a problem. I'm a big snacker. I could spend the whole day snacking rather than painting. So (laughs) what usually happens is I'll eat everything in sight and then I'll get to work. Otherwise, it's just a distraction, an excuse to procrastinate. And uh, from a safety perspective, I do try to be a little bit um, aware of the health risks of sort of, you know, eating and drinking while painting because let's face it, it's a toxic practice. Yeah, totally. It is, you know, it's pretty toxic when you're working with solvents and oil paint and I want to be doing this for a long, long time. So I am kind of aware of that. And I, I don't want to be too reckless about it, though. Sure. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. And um, you really also like the physicality of being standing and, and kind of like feeling the workout of, of being painting. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I think standing is so key. I don't know if I've ever really sat. Uh-huh. Once in a while, I guess I'll sit on the floor if I'm working on a very tiny piece. But yeah, the physicality is so key. And often also I'm working on a larger scale. I would say I feel pretty at home working uh, four by five feet at this point, which involves a certain um, stretching and reaching to get to all points of the canvas. So I do like the kind of dance that can arise when you're working on that scale. And this, 
and the, you know the gesture is important. I you know I do relate to a certain degree to expressionist type of painting. So the the brushwork and the mark making are an extension of the body. And right. for that to happen, I do need to be standing up. I don't know what, I don't know, I can't see myself sitting down at an easel. <laughs> right, right, right. I, I, I guess, should, yeah. I should try that. I don't know what would happen. If you think, for instance, writers, like you you would think normally of a writer sitting down and like in a table or something, mm -hmm. you know, like typing or something. And, and then you learn that people like Hemingway or something, they used to write standing up. And, thing, so? and things like yeah 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 yeah. So like he 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 had his uh, typewriter and he would like stand up and was write. that the first standing desk? Uh, yeah, I guess he, he used the first standing desk, which was like Pioneer. a like a higher kind of like thing. It wasn't even like a desk; it was just a, a, a table, I guess. I don't know. Oh, that's so funny. But you know, like it's kind of interesting that because I guess it is true that a little bit of that is also transferred to to the piece, right? Either mm -hmm. like the energy or as you say, like the brush strokes. So Yeah, well the other thing is I need to be able to be far away as well to look at the piece from right. far. So that means it's kind of again a dance of being up close and painting and then stepping back and looking at the painting from as far away as I can get to see the, the total effect. So it, it just makes a lot more sense to me to be standing up. Of course. And I think it also, um, it's a reflection of the way I work, my attention span. And I'm not, you know, I'm not an endurance painter. I won't be uh, working nonstop for three hours. I kind of need to take breaks. And often it's a lot of looking. It could be half an hour, an hour of active painting and then just looking for a while and then going back to it. That's also very interesting because... I was reading an article and they were talking about the time that practicing artists use in their actual work in, in general, in the whole, say, a day. And it's about like between 20 and 30 percent. And then the rest, you are dealing with paperwork and with other things. And that the creative process happens in like 20, 30 percent of all your not only day, but like in all your like life as an artist. Huh. That that was kind of interesting. Do you agree with that? That's interesting. But then how do we define the creative part? Because I would I guess think painting, painting. Yeah. But I, I think looking is part of the creative uh, sure. aspect oh, as totally. well. So there's the hands on painting, but there's also looking. Mm hmm. And uh, wow, yeah, 20 to 30 percent, though, that's kind of depressing. <laughs> we would hope for more. <laughs> How much do you think that it would be good for you? 100? Ideally, I would like to be in the studio six days a week. Wow, yeah, that's just, yeah. It's, it's not to say that I could sustain that indefinitely, but when I have that energy, there's nowhere else I'd rather be. And, you know, I used to be a night owl, but I find that less tenable nowadays. So I find, and a lot of creative people say this, is the importance of having a routine. So I've tried to establish that for myself. And that means going into the studio at 9 a.m. and staying until 7, 8, whatever, right. <laughs> until the snacks run out. <laughs> and, and then, you know... And sometimes going in at night, but I find that's more of a treat or indulgence. And maybe I per permit myself to be a little bit more free and undisciplined mm -hmm. during night sessions. Right. The having the routine thing. I don't know if that talks a little bit about being professional into your work or 
it's more than make the habit of you know going at the same time the same day so that you work in like the same rhythm um and i'm just saying this because i've been thinking lately about the idea of that like what makes a professional artist you know in terms of uh is either the time that you work in the uh, at the studio or how do you talk about your work how do you write about it like what do you think of that mm, i think the time aspect is key mm -hmm. and i believe that's what people are getting at when they talk about having a routine because you want to be sure to put in those hours you know every day it's less about having the appearance of professionalism i think sure. in my perspective but uh, to be sure it is necessary to be able to talk about your work and write about your work in this contemporary art age if you want to be a quote-unquote professional artist because nobody's going to do it for you sure it's true i mean yeah i guess if you need to apply for which i guess everybody needs to apply for things these mm -hmm. days mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's very rare that someone's just going to scoop you off your feet and curate you and get you into shows and give you opportunities you do need to be an entrepreneur in a certain sense which is so distasteful to admit because we don't want to <laughs> we don't want to you know think about money and mm. capitalism but it's kind of unavoidable i mean yeah so it's 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 a everybody needs to make ends meet mm -hmm. and How's that idea for you? The whole idea of having to do that because we are mm -hmm. just another member of society, mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess it comes down to what your idea of success as an artist is. And again, every artist has their own goals. Some people just want to be making paintings and they're content to do that in the evenings after their job and they you know sustain an, a separate career and then they do paintings and some people want to have shows in uh, swank galleries <laughs> right <laughs> and that's a whole other ball game but it doesn't mean that that person is any more an artist than the person who never has shows um for, for myself I am interested in being part of the contemporary art conversation and to me that means being able to show my work in in art galleries and in settings where other contemporary artists are and are showing because I want to be involved in that conversation. Is that one of the biggest motivations for you? Um, the biggest motivation is to make good work. I could, yeah, I could rephrase that. You know, honestly, I just want to make good work. But someone once told me when you proceed a, a statement with honestly, it's just bullshit. <laughs> it's just nonsense. But it is kind of true in a certain sense. I, you know, I'm obsessed with the idea of putting in the work and just trying to do the best paintings I could possibly do. But you were also asking about, um, like, making ends meet weren't you yeah <laughs> which right. I, you know i don't know if i have anything to say on that matter no but i mean as a recent grad because mm -hmm. you are right like you graduated in 2013 yeah i mean you know it's still recently yeah how do you go about thinking about that in general in terms of okay i want to be able to sustain my art making but i know that i need you know some other way of making the income to continue to live my life mm -hmm. 
I'm really curious to know, like, how do you start thinking about, okay, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that? Or it's just an opportunity-based decision? Hmm. Well, I think part of my belief is that painting is a very long apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. And it's a given that for some time I'll be working side gigs in order to finance this odd endeavor. So, you know, I'll take whatever I can get in terms of admin work and whatnot. And I think that's the reality for a lot of people. Unless you want to sort of be totally immersed in the art world and you decide to try to work in an artist-run center art gallery, that's never been where I want to be in terms of making money. I'd rather just <laughs> not really... How can I say this? I, I've never pursued an art career in terms of art administration. I've never wanted to work in a gallery per se because I think that can very quickly take over your life. Because we are interested in art, it, I think it would be very easy to get overly involved in that. Whereas I prefer at this point just to have a gig that pays the bills and put all my passion and <laughs> work into my studio practice, right. which is totally to separate. It mm -hmm. yeah. has nothing to do with the yeah. artwork. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, so that's my way of thinking is essentially once you get out of art school, you're probably going to have to work <laughs> yeah. unrelated jobs for a while and you have to accept that. And, but again, that's, that's crucial to being able to develop your work because artwork takes time. And I think some people would pursue immediate successes and glitzy, glamorous things from the get-go, but can you sustain an art practice on that? Mm -hmm. I think it's not a coincidence that many... Um, our universities, uh, their criteria for doing a master's degree is that you have to have been outside of school for two two years. Some of them say. Oh yeah. Yeah. Some of that. them have, um, you know, you need to be outside of school for a certain amount of time after your bachelor's, and I think that's important because that's a period of time where you're really deciding: is this what I want to do for the rest of my life? Can I work independently in a studio? Right. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Of course, not every artist has a studio practice. I'm being very painting specific, but sure. of course, that's my bias. Mm -hmm. Are you thinking about an MFA in the near future? Um, I think so. I, I also, I know a number of painters who never did an MFA. And so I don't think it's something that is crucial, especially for the type of work I want to be doing. But I, I, it's something I'm considering for sure, because mm -hmm. it's kind of a special time to just be able to dedicate yourself to your your studio practice and to be surrounded by people who have the same interests and to be able to have conversations. But by no means do I think it's necessary for every artist. Right. Yeah. I mean, some people think that it's some sort of like rite of passage, right? Yeah, it is. It kind of is a rite of passage. There are a number of things that people feel you have to do to be a legitimate artist, to legitimize yourself, which is not a good reason to do anything, but that's kind of how things work. One of them is getting degrees. You know, at this point, you want to be attaining an MFA at minimum, if not a PhD. 
the other thing would be doing residencies. Residencies are a big one. And at their best, they're an opportunity to, uh, you know, to be working in another city, perhaps, and to be uh, doing an exciting project in a constrained period of time. But at their worst, it seems like residencies have just become this big business where you just pay to get into this residency and you're not really offered any support. And it's essentially a, a glamorous holiday. Right. When, yeah. uh, you know, my belief is that the artist should be paid to do a residency. Mm-hmm. You're so working. How does it normally work in a residency? Who organizes residencies and how do you access to them? Mm-hmm. I should say I'm by no means the expert. Sure. But there are, there Sorry, are I no- don't mean to put you in the spot. No, 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 not at all, Marks. Uh, as I see it, there are a number of different kinds of residencies. I think, you know, there are certain ones that would be seen as more prestigious. And those would be prestigious and also desirable to participate in. Those would be the ones that uh, are juried. So oh. you can't just pay and get in. There's a, a, a pure jury, perhaps, or a jury of people from the institution who go through the submissions. And the other thing w- would be that the artist is offered a stipend to participate Uh because, again, this is work. Right. And not only a stipend, but if you're traveling, perhaps airfare or travel expenses. I think that would be, um, you know, those would be two important things. Another thing is often you are uh, hosted by an institution, and that means they'll introduce you to other artists. Perhaps you'll be giving an artist talk to the community. Perhaps you'll be doing an exhibition. And to me, you know, that sounds like a kind of great package, right? Right. Because there's some, you know, you're, you are doing work in your studio and then you get to exhibit. So that to me is, is quite um, desirable, I think. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, I think it would seem to advance your work and career in a certain way. And then it seems like there's a, a glut of residencies that, again, you just sort of pay a fee mm-hmm. and you're given maybe accommodation and perhaps a studio. And that's it. Right. <laughs> Which is fine. <laughs> but it is true that, um, I don't know, it takes a little bit out of the merit, maybe? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what you think. Yeah, it, I mean, but then again, I don't want I don't want to get too judgmental about it because for some people that's all they need is to be able to go away and to be outside of their home city and, and working in a new environment. Uh, as I said, though, it is a big business now. There are a number of websites that um, compile all the opportunities and, you know, yeah, imply. I, I, mean, I, I think I sympathize with your thinking because sometimes it just doesn't seem fair for many people to be able to do everything they want just because they can pay. It just, you know, it, it just doesn't feel right sometimes. Um, but at the same time, I know that you have a project that it's kind of like a critique of that. Mm-hmm. Is that right? In a way, yes. I guess it was in 2015 I founded the De Gaspé Nano Residency. De Gaspé is the street where my studio is located. Right. And uh, I founded this residency kind of as a response to this odd big business that is the modern residency program. And again, it's it's part satire, but it's also a functioning residency. 
the way it works is that I invite artists to submit a seven-word proposal to me for their designated project, the, the project that they would like to do. And the residency is one hour long, so that means the artist comes to my studio and they complete the project in an hour and then they leave. Wow. What happens with the piece? <laughs> <laughs> they take it with them. Right. And uh, again, eventually, I, I would like to develop this more. Um, but as it stands, it is, again, it's it's a little bit silly, but it's it's kind of a bit of an institutional critique. Right. That said, I think artists have responded well so far because they like having a time constraint to do work. It's, mm. you know, once you're out of school, nobody's really going to tell you do this project. The only time you have that urgency is if you have an upcoming show and you're trying to complete the works for the exhibition. Yeah. So I think some people do like having this hour-long period of time where they must do something. Yeah, it sounds like a homework. It is. Uh, you know, like assignment. That. It's yeah. like that. Because it's very easy to get distracted. Yeah. And one hour doesn't sound like a long time, but it kind of is to be working nonstop. Well, yeah, if you like put everything aside, no cell phone, no nothing, no computer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can mm -hmm. get a lot of things on in an hour, mm -hmm. for sure. So how many people have you had for the residency? I've had six residents. Right. It's quite sporadic. Um I think maybe I'll have a few residents coming in shortly, but for now it's kind of in beta mode. Right. I, again, I intend to maybe develop it further. I would like to be able to pay the artist to participate. Hmm. <laughs> so in, I don't know. In, in, in what kind of means? In cash money. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I would like to pay the artists ideally, and I wonder if I could perhaps get a grant because that would be pretty hysterical if the Canada Council would give me five hundred dollars. That would be pretty for funny. a year's worth of residence, and I could you know <laughs> slip everyone a twenty or something. Um, one of my friends was moving out of the city, and he was basically giving away his work, and he was like, "You need to give me something." Anything, a anything. It doesn't matter if it's a tunic, whatever you have in your pocket, because it makes it, you know, kind of like a, it, it's a symbolic thing. Mm -hmm. And that would be great mm -hmm. to like, you know, have some sort of like, here, here's 10 bucks for your, I don't know, whatever, poutine. Yeah. <laughs> That's quite right. It yeah. is symbolic because uh -huh. I do believe in paying artists. Right. Otherwise, it's just kind of insane the amount of unremunerated studio time we put in. Yeah. And then at best you get an exhibition and you're paid Carfax for that exhibition, but mm -hmm. otherwise <laughs> there's almost no recognition for the work. So, you know, perhaps if I could just give a certain token amount, <laughs> that right. could be worth something. Right. So let me let me just ask you a question about mm -hmm. your work. So how do you describe your work? Hmm. Okay. Well, let's see. I'm a painter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a painter, and uh, a lot of the, I, the work that I'm doing deals with objects and places, scenes, interiors, landscapes. And what's quite striking or what's quite obvious is the absence of human figures. When I started painting, that was kind of the challenge that I set myself, was to make interesting work and to make work that had content and narrative without portraying the human figure. And since then, I've kind of elaborated and gone with that idea to different places. So again, I've done um, objects, uh, cars, pianos, you name it, hats. 
I also have a number of series that work with unconventional landscapes. I would say that the unifying force is this love of the spectacle. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to create spectacle, and sometimes that spectacle is tawdry and flamboyant. Whatever is happening, there's always this awareness that someone is looking. So the objects or the scenery is showing off. And through this, I strive to create narratives, which are never straightforward, maybe fragments of narratives. And uh, I also believe in an inner life of the land and in objects. So there's a kind of animistic quality to my work, I would say. Right. Do you think that you can detach from your work ever? Do you think that that is possible? That you do work that doesn't reflect in a, a direct manner mm. what you are feeling or going through? Well, I think it's possible to make things that you don't entirely understand, mm. and perhaps you will with time. Nonetheless, uh, these are things that can communicate to other people, whether you realize that or not. Right. Yeah. I, I'm kind of like taking a moment to like think the phrase of sometimes you make things that you don't understand. Mm -hmm. Huh. That's interesting. Yes. And... Again, as a painter, I think that's so key. Painting in particular can be so revealing of the artist, and that's what I like about it. It just becomes that person. It's, you know, sometimes you just look at work and it's so completely that artist and no one else could have made that. And that's what I love about right. painting. Right. When I visited you in your studio, a couple of the paintings that I got really interested in and, and I wanted to ask you about them is uh, the baseball series. What's going on with those? Yes, I started doing baseball paintings a number of years ago. I was still a student at the time. And since then, I still, once in a while, will do a baseball painting. I think the genesis for this was the experience of going to baseball games when I was a kid. Nice. I actually lived not too far from the Olympic Stadium in Montreal growing up, so that was quite accessible to me. And I went to a number of games uh, <laughs> to see the Expos play. Nice. And I would always be sitting up in the nosebleeds, you know, nice. high up in the, the cheap seats in the back. And that's such a, a bigger perspective of the field when you're almost uh, overhead. Totally. It's, it's an aerial perspective. Yeah. And there's the lights that create this uh, vibrant effect on the field, the colors, the sort of slow moving action when there's, you know, there's fast moments, but it's a slow sport. Yeah. So all of these things, I think, had an effect on me. For sure. When I started doing the paintings, I was mainly painting the baseball field, and I conceived of that as a type of alternate landscape. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And much of that was dealing with the aesthetics of the sport of baseball, again, yeah. kind of hovering overhead and observing yeah. the action. I do recall, actually, in addition, I did do a number of small figure paintings. They were pinups oh, yeah. of the baseball players. So I kind of had these um, small wood panel paintings of baseball players and seductive poses. <laughs> <laughs> so there were a few components to that body of work. Right. But the, the sort of alternate landscape has been a current that runs through my practice. Later on, I was doing what I thought of as nuclear pastorals, where I was painting landscapes that were um, basically um, affected by nuclear technology. A lot of that was 
decommissioned power plants. For example, I painted Jean C. De from Quebec, and that was another sort of aerial view right. of the plant and the surrounding architectures and buildings. Yeah. And also in that series, there were other landscapes dealing with the atom bomb, nuclear anxiety, and so on. Mm-hmm. Let me go back a little to the baseball thing. Yes. Like, are you are you a fan? Like, do you, do you like baseball? I love it. Yeah. When I say I love baseball, I love it as an aesthete. I love it as an aesthetic experience. Right. I wouldn't say I love it as a sports fan. I do appreciate the sport, but. Uh, I'm not probably what you would think of as a sports fan who knows the stats. Right, of course. <laughs> and yeah. so on and so forth. It really is about the color, the, the textures, imagery. The imagery. Right. Exactly. Right. And I, you know, I love to go see baseball games at any opportunity when I travel and so forth. Yeah. So that will always be something special to me. But it's true that it's like a big spectacle. It is. And yeah, I mean, I myself, I'm a big fan of, of baseball. Mm-hmm. I grew up playing that and also going to stadiums and it's a very specific kind of feeling mm-hmm. that gives you going to the stadium you know mm-hmm. rather than just watching on tv or, or something it is very different it, it smells and, and 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 as you say normally it's at night right mm-hmm. so the lights make it so much more um yeah like a big you know show mm-hmm. and baseball is american Baseball is an American sport. Um, is that ever a thing that you kind of like consider in your paintings? Mm-hmm. And that's something I've sort of realized down the line is that I do have this theme that runs through the work and that is an interest in American culture. And this is, again, being a Canadian growing up in Canada, the USA has always been this overarching, strong cultural force. So that does come through in the work. Uh, And I think I'm kind of quite taken with what they call the great American art forms, baseball, musicals, and jazz music. Those are kind of like the all-American art forms. And I think those have woven their way into my paintings and my life as well in various ways. Music, well, I don't want to talk about music too much, but music is there and... um, with my background, I guess, being a music DJ, that right. filters into the paintings, sometimes overtly in paintings that feature stages and pianos and things like that. And then more recently, musicals <laughs> have become an interest. Um, I like the kind of frothiness, the costumes, the stage, the curtains, yeah. that drama. Right. And that, to me, is just a huge playing field that I'm looking forward to exploring more and more. What kind of musicals? (laughs) So far, actually, what I'm really interested in is um, not quite musicals even, but movies about musical theater, movies about actresses Mm -hmm. in the early days of Broadway or films from the 20s and 30s and 40s, like the... Ziegfeld Follies and the Dolly Sisters. I also love Busby Berkeley for his extravagant choreographies and his work with the the human figure and the sort of multiplicity and multiplication of the human figure. Right. So there's so much there. And I think 
watching movies is just really food for the paintings. Totally. <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm interested in musicals uh, as in contemporary musicals going to to visit Broadway in New York. That to me is not um, not compelling, but more uh, the historical aspect of it, historical musicals and historical film. Right. Sometimes I guess you don't even realize, but you get influenced by everything you do, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like subconscious. Mm -hmm. I guess when it's a more uh, kind of like calculated or like planned, almost research, right? If, mm -hmm. you, if you take the time to watch a movie and then you say, okay, I'm researching on these movements and all that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's probably also a source of a lot of information and a lot of visual influence. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. you're quite right that a lot of it is subconscious mm -hmm. until you realize. And then that's when more concentrated research can happen. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about another body of work that you've been working on that uh, portrays the Kremlin as the main character of the paintings. Uh -huh. There was a body of work and that's Uh, from a few years ago and the genesis of this project was uh, a story I read in a newspaper this is around 2015 and there was an assassination in Moscow the dissident Russian politician Boris Nemtsov was shot and the news reporting at the time was so extravagant and extrapolating from the facts it was sort of turned into this big cinematic blowout So I was kind of interested in the way the story was reported. The sole witness to the murder was uh, Boris Nemtsov's girlfriend, Anna Duritskaya. And uh, they had been walking along a bridge together when he was killed. So Anna Duritskaya became a source of fascination to me because all we could get from the newspapers and the news stories were that she was a supermodel. She was very young and beautiful. She was from the Ukraine. So from there, there's a certain objectification and, you know, dealing with cliches, but also this, you know, it becomes this big geopolitical story. Um, of course, people thought Putin was behind the murder. Anna Durskaya was held in captivity for a while because she was the witness. She was being questioned. It became very dramatic. There was a video released of Anna crying and begging for her release. So it was, it was all very strange. And I thought, this is something I want to do paintings about. And again, particularly dealing with Anna, who is this person? I wanted to know more about her as a person, but none of this came out in the reporting. So I kind of had to um, imagine who she could be. Because I'm not interested in painting the figure, I explored this through architectures, mainly through paintings of the Kremlin, interiors of the Kremlin. And um, I was trying to invest her presence into the architectures of the Kremlin. Um, I imagined her kind of haunting this building. So I, I did some rooms that look, I guess, quite, you might say, feminine in a certain way, or rooms where there's a hovering eye. All this was my way of depicting her in a certain way. I was also thinking of Kurt Schwitter's poem, Anne Anna Bloom. That sort of became a provisional title for the series. Anne Anna Bloom is a kind of 
love poem that Kurt Schwitters wrote. And uh, the poem kind of speaks of this woman, the object of his desire, as this shape-shifting creature. And I thought that was a good metaphor for Anna Georgskaya because through the news stories, we weren't getting any sense of a real person. She was kind of a cipher. She was every woman. She was any woman. She was this object almost. So I was kind of playing with her identity in my own way. Um, I did a few aerial views of Moscow, huh. again, coming to my, uh-huh. coming back to my interest in aerial perspectives and landscapes. There was also a kind of sub-series where I was, um, I was depicting a kind of search, maybe right. representative of the search for the perpetrator, where I had sort of spotlights. And again, that was maybe just a pretext to be playing with light and dark in painting. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of maybe offshoots to that one series. Right. It's true that there's no presence of any humans in the paintings. At the same time, they have this uh, feeling of life or, or like either, you know, it's kind of like somebody's there. Maybe the, the more evident one is with the eye, right? Like somebody's mm-hmm. like kind of like looking at you. But I think it, it comes through really well that it is like the imagination of somebody there or somebody going around this place and all that. And it can yeah. be quite macabre because maybe this is a vengeful mm-hmm. spirit of Anna mm-hmm. who's really haunting the Kremlin. Is she dead? She's No, she's not <laughs> dead, but, you know, it could be a disembodied spirit sure. Sure. who's roaming through the Kremlin. <laughs> there was one painting, I suppose, where there is more of a recognizable face. I think you've, you've seen that one called uh, Female Subjectivity, where I have a kind of a face emerging from a wall and that is kind of riffing on Dolly. Yeah, but again, it's kind of like part of the architecture. Yes. It's not just, yeah, 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 yeah. That's great. That's a great painting too. Mm -hmm. Throughout all this, I should say that I'm not totally wedded to the idea that I don't want to be painting human figure because I I don't want to be sort of totally beholden to the idea that I can't paint figures because this is my shtick. I paint objects and landscapes and I'm not going to go there because, of course, I'm open to doing everything and anything. There's one exception also to this is that I have a a painting of Shakespeare Mm. based on one of the paintings that was done during his lifetime. So they call it one of the authentic paintings of him. I think it was completed in 1603. So I did my version of that and that's hanging in my studio. (laughs) So there is one, you know, ultra figurative portrait. Right. And that's kind of just keeping me company. (laughs) Sure. I guess that that raises the question of, is there a very specific reason why you choose most of the time not use the human figure in your paintings? Mm Mm-hmm. At the get-go, it was about doing something different, presenting this challenge to myself. There are other ways to look at it, and I think sometimes you don't see the obvious, and I think that's there is a kind of obvious interpretation of why I do this is because I am pretty introverted. Uh Uh So maybe I feel it more at home without without other people around. Right, right. Um, I mean, you consider yourself introverted but then you talk to all these people in your radio show (laughs) how do you like deal with that is that that ever uh, nerve-wracking um i don't think so because to have that kind of structure in place it makes it less nerve-wracking 
I'm just doing a job. That's right. It's less personal. Yeah, yeah it's for less sure. personal. Yeah. So that was kind of a way to be brave about it, I guess. Yeah. Even as you said before, uh, just the first contact. It's about the project. Mm -hmm. So it, it also makes it easy, at least for me, when it doesn't come just from your own personal drive. I consider myself also a little bit introverted. Mm -hmm. And like this makes it a lot easier. That is not me, it's the project, right? <laughs> so that I can approach people easier, I guess. But yeah. Um, and how about the social aspect of arts in terms of, for instance, going to vernissages and... and going to events and all that, how do you cope with that if you're like this introverted? Uh -huh. I think I'm coming around to that more and more mm -hmm. in recent years. And I wonder if that's because I've sort of enlarged my family of, of artist friends. And so going to an opening means that I usually get to see someone I actually want to see. So it doesn't become this kind of professional obligation. Mm -hmm. And the way I've done that and I started to feel more comfortable and actually excited about these things is probably through my initiatives in doing radio and starting up this odd residency and being involved in artist-run centers and occasionally writing texts about artists and art exhibitions. Yeah. So... <laughs> sounds kind of odd, but I, I, I started to do all of these things because I envisioned it as a way to, uh, to, I wanted to do things myself my own way rather than doing things the conventional way. Mm -hmm. I think typically, especially when you're coming out of art school, you want to develop your artist statement. You want to apply to shows and residencies. Those are the kind of, I think, professional tasks at hand in order to advance your career. But what about just sort of being a weird media empress mm -hmm. <laughs> who has a radio show <laughs> and who kind of writes sometimes and who has this odd residency? Right. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, what kind of perks, you know, has the, uh, the show brought you? <laughs> <laughs> Not much. As again, I'm, I'm being a little bit cheeky about all this because it is so DIY. It is mm -hmm. so low stakes and low key and pretty local. What kind of perks? The perks have really just been meeting beautiful people. There, there you go, yeah. The people I ask to be on my show are generally people I want to get to know, whose work I appreciate and whose work I think deserves recognition and a, a wider audience totally and this is another of my personal kind of like inputs in in all this uh the social value of being involved in this kind of medium is great again i feel that artists spend a lot of time dealing with emotions of people and emotions of themselves so it's just in general they're very nice people <laughs> yeah. Wow. yeah i think so anyways this is again like super emotional but um another question about your work um influences like who do you look up to what kind of like you know things do you go back always to look at images that you know that they will kind of like bring you out of these little um blocks i guess that everybody mm -hmm. has in their work mm -hmm. yeah that's so right uh Sometimes just looking at a good painting can pull you out of your funk. I think what's so crucial for me is seeing work in person. Mm. 
you know, you can find anything on the internet, but that just doesn't cut it for me. I want to see paintings in person. So one of the most uplifting experiences for me is to go see an exhibition. The best is if it's a really big retrospective or a, a big body of work of paintings. And that to me is like one of the, the great experiences you can have. I, I don't get the same feeling from just looking at work on a computer. Right. So that's key. That's a, you know, that's a great influence and inspiration is seeing work in person. And there have been a number of big shows I've seen that have had a profound effect on me, like seeing a big Matisse show, for example, uh, even seeing a big Picasso show in my youth or... Um, Chagall. <laughs> Chagall. Diego. I'm so, so on Chagall. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. That's another conversation. Interesting. Yeah. What don't you like about him? Um... He has some, you know, he has some something to him, but I, I don't know. It's a bit sentimental for me ah. and not the right way. Right. Yeah. But a few paintings. Who else, though? Have I read? Oh, Edvard Munch. I saw a big show of his work. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, local stuff as well. I was blown away by Janet Werner's show recently yeah. in Montreal. Cynthia Girard, another great inspiration. She had a show at the McClure Gallery. That was fantastic. Right. So yeah. these types of experiences can really uh, renew my energy to That's paint. Right. And And what about going what about like the physicality of like being there do you think that it's it's good for you what, why do you think that is hmm well it's more about seeing the paintings okay. in real life sure. uh, the image just doesn't capture everything for most types of painting mm-hmm. so that's really the the experience to me is being able to you know look at the paintings from each angle and kind of getting really close. Yeah. That's so thrilling. Smelling it almost. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so that's one kind of influence, inspiration. Another thing, you know, there's a number of people. And Concordia University has a great painting faculty, actually. I want to uh, mention that because I think that was uh, really essential to my decision to mm-hmm. pursue this. There are people like Eliza Griffiths, Janet Werner, Eleanor Bond, who actually recently retired, but these were people who had a great influence. Susan G. Scott as well. Amazing artists, amazing women. Uh, I think just totally at the top of their game and inspiring. I also really admire Cynthia Girard, who I think is maybe currently at Concordia. She's, she teaches sometimes. But yeah, some Montreal-based painters who I absolutely adore. And then there's a number of other people. I don't know if you want me to yeah. start nattering away. I mean, I, I, what I like about this, this list is that there are people that you actually can have contact with, mm-hmm. people that are still currently working and that you probably had as professors. That's great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I, really, I really enjoy that. Yeah. yeah, and I didn't I didn't study formally with all of those people mm. I mentioned, but because they're in the environment and they're very generous with their time, it was always possible to talk to them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that is kind of fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you can talk to your personal heroes, then you're 
basically said. Although they say sometimes that it's better not to get to know them. But really, uh, <laughs> who says that? Do you know that phrase of like don't get to know your heroes because uh, then they may kind of like disappoint, disappoint you. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true, but not but in this situation. Them, yeah. <laughs> They're all fantastic. None of them have. Okay, so like all of them are women. Mm-hmm. Is that a statement? Mm, yeah, I mean, for sure. I think that's kind of key. I, obviously, it's important to me as a women artist to have role models, and uh, it's we can communicate in a certain way, and we have certain experiences that are shared. Which is not to say that I I don't admire a lot of male painters as well, but yeah, it is something special to have these strong, successful, amazing women artists and to be able to look up to them and to talk to them. Absolutely. That's, that's really... I've been also lately thinking about, of course, that I have all these romantic ideas of the art world and the artists and all that, but there's also very um, kind of like dark corners mm -hmm. in the world of arts, and one of them is the inclusivity and also the old guard, right? That mm -hmm. You know, it's very male-dominated, I understand that, and it's very white-dominated. Like, you know, it's it's true that too. And, you know, when when you think about making changes in a global way and, and the global thinking and all that, and then you look at the art world, which is supposed to be very open-minded and very forward-thinking, and you see how, like, the power politics mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like disheartening because it's the same as any other field is yeah. is dominated by the same old way of thinking. And that kind of like takes away a little bit of, I don't know, I, 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 whatever. It doesn't matter. No, I, what I'm just saying true. is, yeah. That's true. And yeah, it's true. Why can't we expect more? Yeah. I mean, that that is just kind of like a critique on how I feel that things are managed. And what do you think of that? Yeah, well, I think that's absolutely true. There's a lot to be, a lot of problems to be solved in the art world that do reflect the global global system. And, you know, we do need to be dismantling patriarchy and white supremacy and all of these things. And, you know, of course it's a problem that most of these successful artists are white males, And it's for no good reason. There's no shortage of talent and astonishing work coming from artists who are women or uh, trans, people of color, and so on. So, you know, it's part of a global thing. We can only hope for a better world. That's true. I mean, of course, that <laughs> it is a big thing to take on. Yeah. But... It doesn't mean because of that that, you know, we cannot really make a little effort at least having conversation about it, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't know, thinking in a, a little bit of a different possibility. But mm -hmm. And that's part of the mandate of my show, I suppose, is to invite guests who are maybe more marginalized, guests who are not the stereotypical white male, although, you know, I do have male guests once in a while on the show. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is part of my politics is having a diverse um, roster of guests on the radio show. Yeah, it's mine too. Uh, unfortunately, I go finding artists however I can, like, you know, like I met you in a show and, and, 
even when you have that mandate, it becomes really hard just because there's not too many people in terms of just numbers. And that makes you understand where all this is coming from. It's like it's a lot more systematic. Mm. I mean, my own experience has told me that so far. And I definitely want to work hard and to be more inclusive, right? Mm -hmm. at, at least in the women, men department, I try to as much as I can. And, and I think we're doing good on that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> to, in, in, yeah. That, uh, in that respect, I think the large majority of art school graduates these days are women. Yeah. So yeah. that's changing. That is, that's true. However, when you go a little bit further and see who are represented by commercial galleries and all that, that changes oh, a yes. lot. Yeah, of course. The people who are actually picked up by exactly. galleries and successful. Exactly. But we're still at it, you know, whether we're getting gallery representation or not, there's many of us toiling away in yeah. our studios. We're not going to quit. That's great. That's good to hear. I mean, that's that's the best way to do that, right? That's the best way to protest. Um, it's a nice thing. That's the best way to protest, though. It's true. And being an artist is political and pursuing this. Right. I mean, like, that's, that's what... Uh, I don't remember who told me that. Uh, if you don't take care of politics, politics will take care of you. Mm. And it is true. Just being an artist mm -hmm. says a lot about your political stance. Yeah. And... But at the same time, though, not everything is political, is it? Kind of is. Yeah, in in the world, in the art world. Well, I mean, the work itself doesn't need to be overtly political, mm -hmm. but life kind of is. Totally. So, I didn't ask you where you're from. I'm from Montreal. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not very exciting. Born and raised. Born and raised in Montreal. I've spent some time abroad. I studied for a year in France at the Beaux Arts de Nancy. Okay, how was that experience? It was a wonderful experience to be living in Europe and to be able to visit so many museums and to see so many artworks. The school was a particular place. I don't want to dwell on it, but I was one of the few painters there, so it was mm. kind of quite isolating. Mm. Well, what was the main form? People were interested in new media, ah. yeah, and video and so on. I think I was one of two painters. We were placed in studios in a kind of shack outside the main building. So that was kind of... Um, a trial. Mm. Do I really want to be doing this? And I, I did push through and I painted to the end. Nice. Uh, it was kind of a missed opportunity in the sense that I was not, uh, you know, I was not surrounded by a lot of other painters. There wasn't that energy and enthusiasm for painting that you do get at Concordia University, for example. So there was that. That was before Concordia. That was actually partway through. I did an oh. academic exchange oh, for nice. a year. Yeah, so that was really great. That's what great. Else? So you grew up here, and then um, how do you decide to go to art school? Is there artists in your family? Where's that influence comes from? I don't know if I mentioned this I, maybe before we're talking, but uh, recently I was going through the detritus of my childhood, all the sort of school notebooks and documents, and I found a number of uh, a number of documents and drawings and things that uh, gave evidence to the fact that I wanted to be an artist from a young age. 
So, you know, a, a few things, a school school projects what do you want to be when you grow up and you would sort of draw who you would be as an adult and I want to be an artist so there was some of that which I'd sort of forgotten about but apparently this was a a long-held desire for me from childhood my family is not particularly artistic so it's not really coming from their influence although as a child I was brought to museums now and then by my parents which I do appreciate and again, you know, it's, sometimes you have the experience of just going to an exhibition when you're young and being blown away by the work, which did happen to me when I saw Picasso wow. for the first time, that painting of the young boy and the horse. Like, you know, that was such an image to me that sort of blows the mind of a young child to who, who did this? What is this about? That's, that's a great painting. <laughs> yeah, but that's pretty interesting because... I mean, of course, that is a combination of maybe school and your family as well, giving you all this exposure to the arts and all that. But normally when you're a kid, um, you're pretty influenced by whatever your parents are, right? Because that's that's what a person is for you. And it's always interesting for me how a calling can be so strong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what we can attribute it to. I guess it depends if you want to sort of go down that rabbit hole of romanticism and think about, uh, you know, are people, sort of, do they have a calling? Right. Rabbit hole of romanticism, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know certain people who, who knew they wanted to be artists or musicians from a young age, and it was like, almost like a spiritual thing for them. So I don't know if I want to say that's the case for me, but I do know that it's something that I've rarely questioned, for better or for worse. I I never thought too much about the practicalities of being an artist in the world, which is perhaps a little foolish, (laughs) but it speaks to a certain dedication, I suppose. Oh, for sure. At the end of the day, I think it comes back to the stability of a system. For instance, you grew up in Canada where... You know, like you'll have health care and you'll have, you know, all the uh, support from the government. Plus, any job that you can work is going to be enough for you to pay rent. That is very special. That's you true. Know, it doesn't happen like that everywhere. That's And, true. you know, uh, in my own experience growing up in Mexico, that's mm-hmm. not what it is. And so I feel that that gives you the freedom to just really decide to do something that you're really interested in. And I saw this when I came to McGill and there were people there who they were just saying like, I'm super interested in in science, like very much. I was also interested in science, but I also saw it as a way of improving my life in terms of like, I need to get a job. And those jobs are normally good jobs. And that was my one of my main motivations. And when I got to see that people here were just doing it because they really wanted to do it, that really changed my my perspective. That was a very interesting thing. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that it is, again, one of those things that is like you don't realize it, but maybe it's like very systematic. It's like you should just do what you really want to do. You'll find, you know, some obstacles, of course, like everything else. But at the end of the day, you're doing it, right? Mm-hmm. 
That's yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. That's very humbling, and it, of course, it falls into this, or it also reinforces the idea of the privilege we have as artists. And it's true, we do have an enormous amount of privilege being artists in Canada, and we don't always recognize it because it is hard. Mm, it is, and we do struggle, and we have to pay the rent, so we can get hung up on our difficulties. But you're so right that we, we have a we have a, an enormous amount of privilege being here, and being able to choose this career right yeah i mean i don't mean to <laughs> i mean i'm just giving you sort of like my perspective mm -hmm. of things no it's uh, it's really pertinent yeah so do you have siblings i do i have a sister yeah. yeah what does she do right now she's doing marketing work okay yeah she studied history and english right at school nice yeah she's sort of interested in design as well she's done a bit of studying in that field but i don't know if it's really her pursuit at this point right and through you have they uh, gotten more into arts um well there was a lot of resistance on the part of my parents as <laughs> oh, i'm sure yeah. you can imagine like you know you should not go to art school please do something practical with your life but they actually think, told you that yeah of course oh of course that was the constant refrain growing up do something practical go into science do art as a hobby Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people get that. But I think they've come around to it a little bit. I mean, I think they respect all the work I put into this. So they see that it's not just a passing whim. Mm -hmm. What's that profession that they do? They don't do anything art-related, sort no. of admin type okay. of work. Yeah. Right. My mom is an accountant. And it's funny because my sister is, is a dancer. Ah. And so in this case, I'm going to say that the resistance came from me totally, but I did think those things. Hmm. When when she was deciding to do that, I was thinking our uh, situation growing up in Mexico was not privileged at all. And I did think, okay, so what are you gonna do? <laughs> and that's the truth. I mean, it's just, it's just a very normal, I guess, thinking and just questioning, okay, what is the plan? What and kind of dance does your sister do? She's a ballerina, like ballet. Wow. Yeah, and also contemporary dance, but combined with ballet. She's great. She's great, mm. honestly. And I did have that thing, right? And, and then when she went through that, even though, you know, like all the uh, comments and everything that me and my mom could have possibly, I mean, not, not discouraging, just kind of like making her question the decision and all that. Once she did it, it was the best lesson for me personally as a older brother because mm -hmm. it was so brave. It was so brave to do exactly what she wanted to do. And she's so great at it. And she's having a lot of opportunities. She's recovering from an injury now, but because mm -hmm. that's the thing with dancers, right? Yeah. But um, it was the biggest lesson I've gotten. And I was going through a rough patch in my uh, grad, uh, grad school here. And that really helped me to mm -hmm. say like, you know what? I mean, you know, if this is not being great for me, I can just do anything else. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like she's so brave, I can be brave too, kind of like that. Yeah. It was such a great lesson from uh, my younger sister. And ever since then, I guess like I kind of like got open a lot more to all this other area oh. and I'm loving it. That's so nice. Mm -hmm. Is she based in Mexico? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So I still say that there's no real like artistic influences at all in my family, but those have come later in my life, like maybe after mm -hmm. I was like 25, right? Mm -hmm. Or 20 something. And 
it comes directly from my sister, not from anybody older. You know what I mean? Yeah. That is kind of like interesting too. Of course, a lot of friends here mm-hmm. of mine that are artists mm-hmm. that I know since a long time ago. Of course, that's a big influence, but I feel that it's hard for me to recognize that it's also coming from there, which I normally don't associate my family with that kind of things, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry that I, I don't know why I'm talking so much about myself in this No, it's in this nice. chat. I'm sorry. I didn't know that your sister was a dancer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so so nice. yeah. But yeah, I, I guess um it, it just reminded me that you say that your parents mm-hmm. uh, were giving you resistance to yeah. to the idea. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Yeah. They live in Montreal. They do. You see them a lot. Yeah, 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 pretty regularly. That's great. Yeah. That's pretty that's pretty nice. But it's I think it's a very separate life. Mm. There's the art life and then there's everything else. Oh yeah? Yeah. It's like a Batman kind of like situation. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um is there any topics that you would like to bring to the table to discuss? Because, you know, my my thinking and, and ideas about this is also limited by mm. my own experiences. So Is there anything else that you would like to... (laughs) No, that was a great conversation together. I enjoyed it, Marx. Great. Tremendously. (laughs) Thank you. And I appreciate the time you... And and the time and dedication to to be, you know, thinking about my work and what I do. It's very gratifying that you would give your attention to my work. No, it is very interesting for for many reasons, as Mm -hmm. I was saying. From the artist's perspective, but also from your other interests, Mm -hmm. it's very interesting for me, too. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Of course. If yeah. there's one piece of advice, yeah. you have a, a very lovely voice and you, you're well-spoken and you're Thanks. totally a part of the conversation as far as I'm concerned. So Thank you. I'll, I'll probably, you know, hold on to that comment. Yeah, well, I hope you recorded that. So. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you so much. Okay. All right. So that was my conversation with Katarina Pancera. I hope you guys enjoy the conversation as much as I did thanks so much for sticking until the end so uh, more announcements more announcements Um, into this podcast we'll be back in two weeks this time instead of three in two weeks and we'll be featuring a conversation about the show that I mentioned at the beginning uh, the show that is going to be opening on May 4th so in two weeks from now in TAP which is uh, the new art space in the city and uh, so we'll be talking about the show with the artists Raul Aguilar and Marcela Borges. And we'll be posting that episode right on the day when the show opens. So, you know, we don't try ever. We will never try to explain or to nothing. We'll, we'll be just trying to give access to the show through a different avenue. That's all. Nothing more. And then we'll be talking about who the artists are. And, uh, you know, so if you're interested in and want to know a little bit more about them, that's a, I think it's a good way to do that. So again, thank you so much for staying until the end. And this show was mixed and mastered by Milton Matthew. All the visual design was done by Victor Garibay. All the music in this episode was composed by Arcadio Lance, except for that song from the Stooges. <laughs> and the production and edition was done by me, Mark Tris Wilson. You can find more information about this episode on intothispodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you in two weeks. All right. Cheers.